Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens. My guest this week, talking about the five things from his life that he would like to put into a time capsule, four things he'd like to preserve and one he'd like to be rid of, is Richard Herring. Richard started his career as one half of the comedy duo Lee and Herring. The other half was the stand-up comedian Stuart Lee. And together they made radio and TV shows, including Fist of Fun and This Morning with Richard, Not Judy. They also wrote for On The Hour and helped to create the comedy character Alan Partridge with Armando Iannucci and Steve Coogan. Eventually, Richard became a solo stand-up, performing his own shows at the Edinburgh Festival and all over the country, to great acclaim. He wrote Al Murray's sitcom, Time Gentlemen Please, and he also wrote the comedy drama, You Can Choose Your Friends. He was a script editor for Little Britain. But it's as a podcast pioneer that Richard has really made his name. His Leicester Square Theatre podcast has, for a number of years, been groundbreaking. And his guests include most of the top comedy performers you can think of, including Eddie Izzard, Tim Minchin, David Mitchell, James Acaster, Dawn French, Adam Buxton, Stephen Fry and Russell Brand. As well as the 200-plus episodes of this podcast, he's made numerous others, such as Me One vs. Me Two, where he plays himself as snooker, and Stone Clearing, where he tries to clear a field near his home of its stones. And this is our conversation. 
Richard Herring. Hello. Hello. How are you? All right. I'm very good. Welcome to my attic. <laughs> you're never getting out. No, I know. <laughs> you're stuck in here now. And you've got your grandmother on the uh, rocking chair in the corner <laughs> and staring out of the window. She doesn't move a lot, does she? No. 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 <laughs> so it's lovely of you to be here on my time capsule. Oh, it's lo- thank you for asking me. No, no not It's a very good idea for a podcast. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad I had it then. Yeah, good. <laughs> so um, let's launch in with number one. The first thing I'd like to put in is something that no one apart from my family will know what it is, but it's called Bella's Pudding. It's a pudding that was invented by a woman called Bella. I I guess that. (laughs) My grandma knew. I never knew Bella, but my grandma used to make Bella's Pudding, and I think that uh, the taste of Bella's Pudding reminds me of my grandma and and all that sort of childhood association of... They all lived in Middlesbrough, my grandparents, my mum and dad were both met when they were teenagers and both lived in Middlesbrough and their parents lived in Middlesbrough all their life. So going up to uh, Benson Street in Middlesbrough and my grandma making Bella's pudding and only she could do it. We had the recipe, I think, but nobody else could make it the same as my grandma made it. It was basically, I ended up, there was meringue on the top, which was weird. Uh, and the bottom bit was like set caramel, but it was really, I love caramel, but it was like a really moussey, but very specific taste that you now I can still remember, but Should we stop the recording now and go and make some? Well, I mean, we could try. I don't, okay. A, I haven't got the recipe. B, my mum's a great cook and my sister's a great cook, and they tried to recreate it uh, subsequently. And my grandma lived for ages and ages, but... Uh, stopped cooking and then she uh, got uh, Alzheimer's and everything so she she was incapable of making it but my mum and sister tried to make it but it was never the same never as good uh, is there a liquid in this as well no it's set so it's set mm. caramel and then meringue. the meringue on top which I often didn't eat the, the meringue wasn't my favourite bit about it but the mer- there was a meringue on top like a uh, lemon curd thing you know that kind of meringue you get on top yeah. of the lemon curd thing which is fine but the caramel thing was so good. Uh, and so I'd like to have that just so I could eat it again. If I can go back to the time capsule and pick that out. And oh, we've got a window cleaner here. I hope that's not going to disturb your... No, no, no. Everything's like, happening today. He'd like to join I in. have a lot of stuff. It's <laughs> 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 just they're all here today. Uh, it doesn't take him long to do. He's got this big yeah, hole yeah. with it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, yeah. So, it just uh, I thought it would be a good thing for the time capsule because I think it sort of summed up my you know a childhood memory i love my grandma was amazing all my grandparents were amazing but my grandma doris lived till she was 102 uh and just was like the matriarch of the family she sort of uh, you know died of about seven or eight years ago but uh in middlesbrough she, she lived in middlesbrough and she actually came down and lived with my parents when she was got, got too old to look after herself but i think there's just something about that you know i've gone back to middlesbrough every now and again on a tour or you know pass through it and you drive to the the houses that your grandparents lived in, yeah, and it's sort of so different. So Benson Street is—I mean, it, it's it's a very old-fashioned street of two down, two up kind of terraced houses. I feel there was she had an outside toilet there in the right in the, uh, the beginning, but the, the, it backs onto a little alleyway. You know, there's a little yard at the back, and it backs onto an alleyway. Uh, and so there's so many memories of going up there. We lived in York when I was near York when I was born, and then we moved to. Leicestershire and then we moved to Somerset so it was a long when we were going up the times I remember it was that long six hour drive up there which was interminable as a kid and so we went up there quite quite often to see them all so just it, there's something about I think Bella's pudding that kind of coalesces around all of that including my my 
dad's uh, parents as well. What brought your parents down south? Well, my dad was a headmaster, well, he was a teacher, so he, he just kept on getting promoted and getting new jobs. So, he, yeah, he had. A, I was born in Pocklington, and my dad was working as the maths teacher in there's a Pocklington public school there yeah. that uh, Aid Edmondson went to, I believe, ah. just after my dad, though, I think. Uh, and but I occasionally get emails from people who've been taught by my dad various at various times. Are obviously a little bit older than me generally, not all of them. Uh, and uh, so sometimes people remember being taught to him in Pockinson, and then he became a deputy head in a place called Corn before Corn existed. The, the food existed, uh, so there's no jokes then. So we lived in Loughborough for four years. And then we moved to Cheddar, where my dad became the headmaster of the King's Wessex School. So, yeah, we moved around a lot, but we always had this... They stayed uh, set, really, the, the grandparents. And we're always in those same two houses for the time I remember. And, uh, yeah, it's just... I mean, I think taste is like... I've, I've, with these, I think I've tried to do a different sense for each one, just coincidentally. Brilliant. But taste, it's such a... Taste and smell, I think, particularly, aren't they? When you, you smell something that absolutely smells like something you remember from 45 years ago. Yeah. And, and, it, and it takes you right back there. And I think taste does that as well. I it's found weird, that, isn't it, that the brain's able to do that? that yeah. You, you haven't... It's a bit like lyrics in songs, which yeah. uh, you hear a song you haven't heard for 40 years and you sing along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I was experienced the other day, someone was talking about, uh, there was someone doing a podcast about Mosley, Oswald Mosley, and uh, I just completely remember all the lyrics to the Not the Night What News song about him when he died, which I didn't even understand at the time, but I just learned off by heart, which includes like just quotes from his obituary, so I can quote Oswald Mosley's obituary <laughs> <laughs> word for word, which is a weird thing to still be able to do. 30, 40 years later. Uh, and yeah, but and, and I've realised, I did this thing the other day where um, I never realised, but I don't have a visual, I don't have a mind's eye that can visualise objects in my mind. Oh, right. Everything's just by feeling and uh, words. I mean, if I close my eyes and try to picture an apple, if you do that, if you close your eyes and try to picture an apple, do you see... A three, do you see a three-dimensional yeah, yeah, colour? Because yeah. so there's five different options. Basically. Some people see like three-dimensional colour. Mm-hmm. Some people see two-dimensional colour. Some people see sort of black and white. Some people see sort of a vague image. And some people see nothing. Right. And I just have... I, I know what an apple is. <laughs> and I have the <laughs> sense of an apple. But I didn't realise until I did this test that I don't have a mind's eye. There's like... It's almost like I can... I feel like I'm behind the camera. can almost or get a snatch of that there was something there. So I think that maybe even more so sort of smells and tastes maybe have more of a, a, a pertinence to me. But that was quite an unpleasant thing to realise that I can't... It's yeah. quite it's weird that I hadn't realised that. I think well, when I'm not, when do, it's not a thing you talk to other people about. How yeah. do you think of things when, yeah. you, when you close your eyes and imagine them? Yeah, well, I sort of thought I did imagine, like... Pictures, and that, but it's but it's just like uh, it's like if I'm thinking, you know, if I've got my eyes open, I can do it a bit better. But it's still like a sort of a fleeting. I can't actually <laughs> think of something and visualize it. And some people don't um, think with words at all. Some people, I've got an internal monologue. Some people don't have an internal monologue and only can only can think in images. Yeah. So that's I don't know. I thought that was interesting and quite upsetting that I uh, <laughs> I've been trying to visualize things and you think, well, how do I remember was. It might be why I'm not that good at remembering people's faces. I don't know. You know, when you you know, I can think of my. So if I'm thinking of my kids' faces, I'm sort of getting a something, but it isn't a picture of their face. I'm, I can. It's sort so of. I can weird. understand why you've gone for sort of taste. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. Well, that's that's what. And actually, sight is the one that I'm not. You're uh, struggling. That with. I'm struggling with. So there you go. So that's that's an interesting. That makes complete conundrum. sense, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> not complete <laughs> it sense. There's a sense missing. But it might be why I, mean, I can't ever do that. I'm quite good with logic puzzles and those sort of IQ test things, but I can never make a 
cube out of you know when they make make a cube out of a flat of two dimensional object and I can't I'm used to maps and stuff like that so I I think that's probably why I can't rotate an object in my brain because I can't think of the object <laughs> but this, uh, this this eternal dialogue going on in your yeah. head um, is it a monologue or is it yeah yeah I think so but people have completely different things uh, with with that as well Robin Ince has written a great book about um, comedy and and but again the way people think and where they think and what part of their brain is used to think and how they visualise stuff, um, you know, everyone's got a different sort of way of doing it. And so some people have lots of different voices competing with each other. I've always sort of been fascinated with um, the comedy within one's own craziness, and that's what a lot yeah. of my stuff's about. But I'm very obsessive about stuff, and I like to kind of experiment pretending I'm crazier than I am, which is a slightly dangerous thing to do. It's like the episode of Colditz where the guy pretends to be mad to escape from Colditz, but then goes mad. Yes. Um you sort of worry that I push occasionally with these things where I push a, a crazy idea and do it over ten, like playing snooker against myself. When we're right by my snooker table, which is one of my podcast, or moving stones out of a field, which is one of my podcasts. Mm-hmm. I get, I have these things where I get quite obsessive. I've moved uh, stones out of a field, the, but it's a terribly rewarding uh, thing. Yeah, it is. Well, that's it. I think there's something, there's something sort of uh, visceral and uh, basic about it, I think, which is sort of what that podcast is about, but it's, but it's, again, it's about playing with the craziness of what I'm doing and, and the voices in the head, but I don't have, I don't really have, I have a me one versus me two snooker in which I divide into two different players who play each other with snooker, uh, which I did as a kid. Snooker table, I should put that in as one of my objects, my snooker table. <laughs> we can maybe do that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's make the. I'll move on to the snooker Absolutely table. Absolutely right. Well, we'll that take can be our. That's our visual thing. The you snooker found table. One. You found <laughs> Strangely, by looking at. It. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there it is. <laughs> we'll, put, uh, we'll put it in when, uh, as long as I've got one that can play on. And actually, I've got a spare one in the garage that I use okay. when, I take, when I take it out. Of the well, we're going to put Bella's pudding in. <laughs> yeah. put Bella's, Bella's pudding, pudding is in, so that reminds me of grandma one. and childhood with the, my family. Fantastic. Um, and yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so I, I, I think it is interesting because you know, sanity is. You know what? What is sanity, and who is sane? And we don't know. I think that the insides of our heads are our own, and mm. and that's what's interesting. We don't know what goes on in other people's heads. We don't know how other people see things, even if they see the same colours as us, or if they experience things in the same way as us. And clearly, they don't. But I think it's quite interesting to push it. I think immediately, a lot of comedy is about someone behaving in an extreme or insane fashion. So, yeah, like, or know, pointing out to the audience yeah. another way to look at things. Yeah, yeah. So both of those things. But you know, like people used to go to Bedlam and laugh at the mad people and that there's an element where I think like sometimes comedy are we still doing you know some comedians you watch think am I I laughing at this for the right reason am I laughing at this person or you know and I think that's quite an interesting place to experiment with so I think like and sometimes with these podcasts I think is it driving me mad there's points where you're you know mentally a little bit less secure (laughs) and you think is it a good idea to I stopped doing the snooker one for a bit because I just thought, am I going, is this actually a bit too insane? And <laughs> is actually, this the I was most doing, important thing I, in my life? I was doing the stone clearing before I did the podcast and actually doing the podcast made it more sane than what I was doing. You know, doing it for no reason, you know, just doing it in my own spare time, trying to hide what I was doing from other dog walks and stuff because I didn't want to look mad. Uh, I was just trying to, I'm trying to build a wall that can, is visible from space with the many stones on the field just, just over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, and then actually doing the podcast, it made me a stop doing it every single day. So I would just go out, I go out once or twice a week now and do it because I was just doing it on my dog walk. I was, you know, I was on a dog walk thinking this is a wasted time. 
I could help this farmer. I could be fruitful. I could clear the field. The farmer might not want the field cleared, but I'm not going to ask them about that. I'm just no, going to do not, it anyway. These stones stone might leaving. be useful for drainage. Uh, but I think, you know, that that obsession, I think, is um, is an interesting thing to explore, as well as, you know, a lot of my comedies about myself. So when I was a kid, I, I really wanted a snooker table. A snooker was massive... Uh, in the late 70s and 80s with Pop Black and everything. And mm. and so my parents finally did... Uh, I think get the, is the dog coming back? No, it's just a window cleaner. It might be. Oh, it's a window cleaner again. Oh, good, yeah. Oh, he's on a different window. <laughs> Sounds like there's a little latch. That's OK. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I remember this Christmas where I really wanted a snooker table and I'd really asked for the snooker table. And then, it, you know, my little pillowcase of, of presents was there. And then at the bottom it said, open this last. And then there was an envelope saying, go into this other room and... There, my snooker table was set up, my six by three snooker table. This isn't the one, but it's very similar. And I just spent so much time as a kid. My kid, my brother and sister were both five, six years older than me. So by that stage, I'd either left home or weren't interested in like playing with me and weren't that interested in playing with me when I was younger, I suppose, as well. So I spent so much time playing myself at snooker, but also playing Sabutio against myself on the snooker table. So I'd use the snooker table as the... It basically meant you never kick the ball out of play, I think, as well, because it was at the side. You wouldn't yeah. really have throw-ins because it would more or less stay in. It was about the same size. Uh, and, yeah, I used to just fastidiously... I mean, more the Sabutio. I used to have league tables. I had a league ladder. I played all the divisions. I didn't play all the teams, but I played, I think, like 12 teams in every division. <laughs> uh, my team, whoever my team was, would always win everything. It would win. So I was completely biased because I was completely just playing both sides at the same time. Yeah. So I spent, I mean, I spent way too much time doing that sort of stuff as a kid. Um, and then I used to play snooker against myself and commentate on that snooker. And so that, when that became a podcast, there's certain type of personality who recognise this behaviour. But also people, it'd be interesting to see if you could get people behind, A, getting involved in a sport where the person wasn't very good at the game, which you don't, have, you don't really ever see. No. So I've done a few live performances of this where people pay money to come and watch me play snooker myself <laughs> badly. <laughs> Not many people, I have to admit. Uh, also doing it without being able to see the snooker table, yes, uh, which is what the podcast is as well, but was what this Twitter was that you were just describing, again, quite badly describing snooker. I'm not 100% sure on all the rules. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then all these characters kind of came out of that. So I think certainly in the early days, the, the, it was quite, it was sort of, it's now become quite a sort of settled this is just about trying to find out who the best player is, me one or me two, and with you know I've done a hundred and one frames of snooker on as a podcast. Who's winning? Um, I can't. You've got to listen to them. Uh, okay, all right. So no, 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 don't we've done a away. few specials, uh, but to begin with, it was quite inventive. Like in terms of, I think a few other players came in, and one of the referees kept on making mistakes, so he got shot into space <laughs> by this self-flag snooker federation. And and I quite like that as a. I quite like a completely unprepared stream of consciousness which the stone clearing is a very similar thing in that i'm going into something without you know i know what the structure of it is but i've got no idea what's going to happen and no idea what i'm going to say mm. so for the stone clearing once you've done 57 podcasts of me walking around a field clearing stones you know it's surprising a lot of it's boring that's sort of the joke but it's surprising what how your mind will conjure stuff up and rules develop and you know and and I think as a writer and comedian, that's quite an interesting. They're generally two of my favourite things I do. A lot of they get very few uh, listens. Uh, the idea with the snooker one was that I try and get to zero listeners. <laughs> it started with thirty thousand downloads the first week. It's on about three thousand now, but it's been going for seven or eight years. 
So 3,000 people still download it every week I do oh, it. Oh, no, you see, I'm going to bug it when you up. I'm so, definitely going to so sign there's, up. There's no way I'm ever going to be able to stop doing it. Uh, so it's, it's playing with the comedy of boredom and, and stupid, you know, repetitiveness, but also there's weird invention within that. But I think it's also about... Well, the snooker is very much about the competition that you have between yourself in your life. The stone cling ones are sort of about the you versus nature mm. and and how you're never going to win that battle. There's a million stones on this field, like at least. And so it's the idea of a man thinking, oh, in the next 30 or 40 years I could clear all those where yeah. I've been doing it for 14 months. And you, if you looked at the field, aside from a few cairns around the edge, you would not be able to see any. <laughs> <laughs> the farmer has not yet realised what is happening. Uh, so I don't think, uh, although, you know, I, the joke in it is I'm doing it secretly. Uh, has anybody there. joined in? No, well, yes. Well, someone was doing it. There was a mini can there, and so there was a guy who was doing it who would pick up one stone. So I then have turned that into quite a huge stone. Uh, someone, uh, actually, it's over there. Someone, one Christmas, put up a sign. Oh, someone put up a sign saying Herring's Mound and what it was. And someone at Christmas put a Happy Christmas and Happy New Year stone on top of it. But I'm trying to pretend that no one in the village knows what it is, though. And they obviously, they all see me moving stones around and say to my wife, what the fuck is your husband doing? Is he crazy? But, you know, I've I've always been fascinated by that comedy. I mean, me and Stuart as well. And Stuart's obviously Mm. taken it into a sort of uh, more mainstream, slightly more mainstream than the stone clearing thing. But it's that, the comedy of repetition, the comedy of... You smashing your, your head against a brick wall for no reason, you know, and it's it's sort of what life is about, you know. It's not. Re- I think it, I think there's an art in it as well as it. It's stupid, and it's, it's stupid to describe it as art as well. But the, it is about that we're all just basically doing a pointless thing until up until, until it ends, and, and there's nothing. You know, the idea of me trying to re- achieve immortality by having a wall there that will never no. disappear. I mean, it will disappear as well. That's the thing. But even uh, you know, but. Um, so, yeah, so I think that snooker table symbolises that obsessive part of my personality mm. uh, and is probably quite central to a lot of the comedy I've done over the years. But that kind of relentless battering down of an idea uh, and, and taking it as far as you can and that the peaks and troughs of that, because, you know, you, everyone's had that experience where they do something for too long and, and it's, some, it's funny, then it's really not funny and then it's the funniest thing ever. Funniest yeah. thing ever, yeah. Rick Mayle did that. Uh, he, yeah. I remember he did the opening where he wouldn't speak yeah, to the audience. Yeah, awesome. And he just stayed quiet, walked around the yeah. stage sort of flicking Vs. At yeah, them. yeah. So, to begin with, I saw it, the first time I saw it, for about two minutes, yeah. which is a long time. Yeah, yeah. And when I saw it in Edinburgh, for about ten minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's it. So, I mean, Rick Mayle, absolutely one of my absolute comedy heroes. And yeah, I think just some people are that funny as well. That he's just there's something about him that yeah, whatever he's doing. There's a few people, Bob Mortimer. I think yes. whatever Bob Mortimer is doing, you're just in it and you're laughing at it. And there's just something implicitly funny about him. There's but there are you know I interview people for my podcast and they're very funny people and they're funny in lots of different ways. Uh, and some of them are very witty and some of them are very considered and some of them are off the cuff. But there are very few people you go, yeah, this person is just like funniness in there. You know, Greg Davis, I think James Acaster, they're John Cairns, I really love her. I've done a couple of podcasts with him recently, and there's just something that's inexplicably funny, but you can't you know, you can't even begin to understand why you're laughing at it. But yeah, that Rick Mail bit, which I've only seen, I've never seen live, I've seen him uh, the video of it. But also within that he creates a drama in that the Rick Mail on stage isn't understanding what people are laughing at, yeah. and you're laughing at him not understanding and laughing at him, his pretensions. And, yes. and it's so smart, 
but you know, you absolutely understand that came out of him just dicking around. He talked to me about it when he first started the tour, and he talked about the possibility of this idea. Yeah. Where's it going to go? Yeah. I'm quite keen to see how far I can go before they sort of start throwing things at me. Yeah, yeah. So he was willing to risk real danger. Yeah, and I think as a comedian, I mean, again, I mean, Stu and I went on very similar paths because we shared a path for a very long time. But I think that, you know, you as a performer, you get bored. As a performer, you think, what can I, you know, how can I make, do something different than everyone else is doing? And how can I push the boundaries of what I'm doing and discover new stuff in it? And that's what, within a stand-up show, I've always, even when it's quite, you know, structured stand-up show, I've always had bits where I'm pushing back and trying to find new stuff or a bit. I do it less now because as a parent, I kind of think these people have spent money coming out for one <laughs> for one time a month if they're lucky, and I don't want to waste <laughs> the whole time. So in the two thousands, I did several shows which were just meant to um, <clears throat> antagonise, you know, as much as make you laugh. And through that antagonisation, hope someone likes yogurt, which is the only show I listen. It's my most successful show in a lot of ways, and my least successful in that it was. The Daily Telegraph called it the worst comedy experience of the year, <laughs> which I was surprised at because sometimes it didn't work. But I would have thought a reviewer would go, "There's something interesting in what this guy's doing." So I, there was no, a, it was a Daily Telegraph, but, yeah. But uh, the guy is usually quite good. That guy, but it was so it was sort of weird. To, so that was the worst thing. But it's the best selling of any of my DVDs, and you know, and it's. But it makes but you realise the, that there are people out there who are like-minded. That's yeah, yeah. The thing, yeah, it? they are. But it's the one that I listened when I did them all again. I did all my shows like instead of going to Edinburgh one year. I did all my shows uh, in six weekends, 12 shows it was at the time, and uh, it was the one that annoyed me the most and the one that I didn't, that I thought, I did this thing where I went to a supermarket and I bought nine yogurts and the checkout girl said, oh, someone likes yogurt. <laughs> and then I did a, you know, a, again, it was exactly the same thing. I was on, I was just doing stand-up again. It started as a five-minute routine about how I didn't particularly like yogurt. I was just buying them to see me through the, you know, the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and then that extended into what sometimes was an hour-long routine about me taking it further and further and getting angrier and angrier, yes. finding new avenues. But it was entirely from touring it, not touring going. I was doing stand-up shows. I was doing stand-up clubs at the time, and sometimes the audience would love it, and sometimes a portion of the audience would love it, and sometimes people were furiously angry with me for wasting their time with this, you know, ten, <laughs> even a ten-minute version. It became this performance piece where you don't care how it's going down, or you're enjoying antagonising, you're enjoying the fact that some people love it and some people hate it. Uh, which would take us on, actually, maybe to the next item. Yes. Which is a sound. <laughs> which is the sound uh, of an audience laughing at my show, Christ on a Bike. I'd done solo stand-up when I first came to London. Me and Stuart had done solo stand-up. Stuart had done quite a bit at university of stand-up and was immediately very successful. And I had done lots of sketches and stuff. And I was very much... I'd had various bad experiences in Edinburgh where we'd been uh, pilloried. As the, I was in the Oxford Review and we got um, pulled apart by all the stand-ups, basically, who booked us and then booed us off. And, yes. And I, I had quite I a... I share that experience. Yeah, yeah. So we had I quite... I was in the Oxford Review. Yes, we course, did yeah. sketches yeah. and they booed us off. Yeah. Stand-up had won the battle between sketch and stand-up. But we sort of caught the flack as 19-year-olds being, <laughs> being the sort of exemplifying this posh public school thing, which none of us were. But anyway, you know, I was already kind of feeling like, well, I don't want to get involved in stand-up because of all those people giving me a horrible time. I did two years of stand-up and I, and I would never quite pin down what I wanted to do. I was always either trying to do what I thought was good or what I thought would get me work and sort of falling in the middle, you know, never, mm. never doing either properly. It just felt like I was missing it. Whereas Stu was doing very well. 
and uh, and so I obviously kind of then threw all my lot into doing the double act and doing sketches on the mm. radio and and working. The uh, fist of the thumb TV show. to yeah. the telly that happened so quickly. It did right? really. It was five five years, and we took given a five year plan, and yeah, we were on TV in five years, which was is insane and too quick, I think, as well. Really, I, I didn't. I never quite appreciated. We'd worked really hard and concentrated entirely on comedy for those five years and had no money uh, and uh, just wrote so much stuff. Uh, and it was amazing. It was an amazing time. But um, I think if we'd had another five years before it happened, you know, might, we might have been able to secure our position a bit more but also enjoyed it more or, you know, I don't know. But it was, it was very fast. But, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was incredible. But once that ended, I then was writing for uh, Al Murray... Suddenly, we, I was meant to be writing the sitcom, but then there was uh, it was delayed a bit. So they said, "Oh, you could do Edinburgh." And I made this very last minute decision to do an Edinburgh show on my own, which was Christ on the bike. I just I had this idea. I wanted to find out why I was so obsessed with Jesus. I'd been back at Cheddar with my brother and my. We I was reading a book by Giza Vermez about the life of Jesus, and my brother was talking about it. And my mum, who's a Christian, was going, "If you two are so sure Jesus isn't God, why?" why you spent all your time talking and reading about it. And I kind of thought, well, that's really interesting. So I did a show about that, basically. Um, But it was very nerve-wracking to go back to completely solo stuff. And it felt like a theatre piece rather than a stand-up piece per se. But it was stand-up. And I actually had a stand-up mic, but I had a lapel mic like we've got here as well. And the stand-up mic wasn't turned on. I just needed it to hold on to. Yeah. The prop. Yeah, <laughs> so I was just literally standing there. Uh, and it was like a big deal to try, you know, obviously Leon Herring, had, we kind of worked out, was more or less finished, uh, just from the the BBC's decision rather than our own, but it kind of probably suited us both that we wanted to move on. Um, and then I, I, I was sort of taking this leap in the dark to do this Christ on a Bike show, and it had, it, you know, I'd done some previews and it wasn't quite there. It's obviously very hard to put together a one-man show, and that was my first completely one-man show it felt like a really big deal and then I got to Edinburgh and I was in this room um sort of cabaret style room in Edinburgh and there was a bit in Christ on a bike this was a joke that had come again actually I was in Middlesbrough and I came up with this joke when I was eight years old again reading the bible which I was as, as a kid trying to be a good Christian at the time the first page of the bible is the genealogy of Christ yeah uh, Abraham begat Isaac Isaac begat Jacob Jacob begat Judas and his brethren uh, and as an eight-year-old, I said to my mum, you know, it says, we get Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. And I said to my mum as an eight-year-old, but, you know, Jesus isn't related to Joseph. So if he isn't related to Joseph, he isn't related to any of the people in that list. <laughs> so, so I note in my mum, went, oh, oh yeah. Um, you know, and I think other people have made that observation and realised that. But what I did was, I did this routine, of how important this first page, you know, this is the first page of the Bible. It looks very boring, but it's very important because it's establishing Jesus's kinship to David and Abraham proves his divinity and that and I think it's such an important passage of the Bible everybody should know it off by heart if everyone <laughs> would laugh and you go oh, yeah great there's this massive list of names and then I would with the list behind me I would then reel off the list of names uh, and it was an impressive feat of memory which I nearly always got uh, then I go no it's fair but it's you know it looks impressive but there is a trick to it, obviously to doing that um, I'll let you in you've been a nice audience all you have to do is remember the very simple acronym and then the first letter of the, the, <laughs> that comes up and that gets a big laugh and then you go, uh, 
which is Abi Ibjad Jubjad Baj Bapazot Takbirabar Barbanamba Saspa Babor Object. I can still do the whole thing, right? So, it's, uh, <laughs> so you do the whole thing, and then I'd realise that it's all very well until you realise that Joseph isn't related to Jesus, and then I would get furious at the fact that I'd learned all this, do it backwards, which is the hardest. <laughs> he isn't related to Joseph or Jacob or Nathan or Lisa or Achim or Sadok or It's But it's, you know, again, it's nearly always in there. I've done it a few times in subsequent years, and takes. it was hard to learn the first time, but every time I go back to it, I can basically pick it up. But anyway, there's this routine and this is part of it. And then, it, then I get really angry about, uh, there's a character called Booze of Rakab in there. <laughs> and I would get angry about this idea of Booze of Rakab. And the, this routine was just, you know, it would get, it would go better and better and that you would get an audience. And, and I, because it was so long since I'd experienced being on stage on my own, uh, and I'd got the audience to the point where you would look at them and listen to them and they were in pain laughing you know you see heads flying but you know and this doesn't happen very often as a comedian you don't get yeah. you get like nice laughs you get you get occasional big laughs you get rolling laughs you get all these fun things that are interesting to see they don't happen all the time and they don't but it's just consistently this bit would be getting people just crying you'd look at them you'd listen to them this amazing sound in pain and you knew there was a funnier bit coming. Oh. <laughs> there was a laugh at this and you knew you had a line coming up that would make them laugh more than they were capable of laughing. <laughs> and so I think that to, it was just a very important moment in my career because it, it I'd had all these doubts about doing stuff on my own and performing on my own and I was thinking maybe I'd just become a writer and I was writing um, with Al Murray and uh, doing a very successful sitcom making money for the first time in my life so I didn't need to go back and do stand-up but that sound and that moment I think if you could bottle that up mm. it just was going okay look you definitely can do this um, and again it's not something that I've massively experienced in the last 20 years since that happened the job is about making people laugh you know and, and you don't forget those things and you. so it's great to succeed but it also I mean it really made me understand uh, why some stand-ups go insane yeah like with ego because it's an incredibly powerful thing to know you've got something that's that good that will always be that good mm. and you know I also knew that was a routine that no one was ever going to steal because the the work <laughs> a I don't think many people could do it uh, and remember it and b the work involved in uh, in putting it together wasn't worth the stealing so I knew I had like a bulletproof routine um, it was a big thing to overcome those worries about stand up and go back to it but so uh, yeah and it was also like okay that's it's possible that I can that this <laughs> that I can carry on working at a time <laughs> when you think maybe I'm, you know maybe my career is going to change and I think at that time I was still 30 I was 33 because I was the same age as Jesus which is part of the reason I did mm. the show um, but you know you still think oh there's a good chance this you know this could end at any point you know like, I might have to get a proper job and I might have to we all have those ones. yeah yeah and I think you know when we get a little bit older, you kind of Thank go, well, you. I think, uh, as <laughs> we both have, <laughs> I think you go, okay. I think we're well, only referring to this. <laughs> I mean, you, I'm, I'm still 33. <laughs> um, you know, you start to appreciate that, um, that, you know, we start to think, well, I'm stuck in this anyway. Whatever happens, I'm stuck doing this, whatever I'm doing, mm. till, till the end. There's something for me to do in this 
industry for the next 10 or 15 years, which is all I need to get, yes. me, get me to the grave. That great laugh, though, that, yeah. that rolling, roaring laugh where people are in pain yeah. is such a, a rare thing. Yeah. And to have done that, to have made people do that uh, on your own is, a, is an amazing thing. I, yeah. was, I was lucky enough to be able to tell Stephen Moore, the actor, right. before he died, uh. that as a young man I'd seen him at the National Theatre in an Alan Aikbourne play, yeah. and that I remembered it distinctly because there was something that he did in it that made the audience laugh like that. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I remember a man falling from his seat into the aisle, <laughs> right. shouting, Stop! Please, stop! But I could see that he was delighted. Because yeah, yeah, of course. It reminded him that, that, in fact, he wasn't the only person who remembered how well this thing had gone. I think that's true, and I think you will... You do. You remember the times you've been in the audience. When your comedy's right, and I think like there's loads of times I'm going to have a trimming too smart ass or like this thing, trying to annoy people. Ultimately, the job is make people happier than they were when they came in. Even if they're laughing themselves, even if they're laughing at the worst things in the world, um, that for a moment you're giving this release where you are, you know, I'm very self-conscious and I think only on stage am I really able to let myself go in a way that I think in life I don't, I, I find it very hard to overcome my self-consciousness <laughs> uh, in anything, you know, and I think that's why I love watching comedy because I think when you lose your self-consciousness and you're just, you're in the moment, and that's why I think there are just times when you think you've done a gig and you just know someone's going to remember that gig in 20 and 30 years' time and go, that was an amazing night, that was incredible. You know, there's just those, sometimes there are those special nights where something's just a bit different uh, or something's just a bit crazy and you know you've experienced something that no one's going to experience again. And yeah, so I think like as a comedian, you can either go that ego way of, I'm amazing, I've created this <laughs> thing, or you go, this is a group thing that we've, you know, and I think it's very hard to... To not have a little bit of ego about it, but but some some comedians the ego becomes yeah <laughs> becomes without, without me you'd all be nothing your life would be drab uh, and uh, and I think you know it is that relationship it is a reciprocal relationship isn't it because in fact without the audience the comedian is absolutely nothing yeah. the comedian is just a terrible person saying awful things uh, so yeah so that was the a very important moment in my career but I think that is. You know, and also you can think maybe something will come along that will be <laughs> maybe the peak will be to come. One foot in the grave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Suddenly. So uh, Richard Wilson was, I think, about my age when he got one foot in the grave, which yeah. is, I think is fifty-two, which I'm fifty-two. He might have been, been a bit younger, which is <laughs> that's, no, that's hard to believe, isn't it? So let, no, that's um, it. Well, that's we, all right, have I done three now? I've done. You've done three. We yeah. have. We have Bella's put in pudding. Bella's pudding. Snooker we have put in your snooker table, and we put in that fantastic glass. That fantastic glass. Okay, it's time for an ad break. We'll be back very shortly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Okay, let's find out what the fourth thing is that Richard Herring would like to put in his time capsule. I thought I'd just smell one. Um, And uh, the smell is the smell of my wife's head when we started dating I'm not saying anything because I, that's a shared experience, but not with your wife. <laughs> there was just this amazing, I don't know what it was. It's still there a little bit, but not the same way. So it's something, some kind of pheromone thing going on. I met her when I was uh, 40, but I kind of, I'd met her once and really liked her. And then I didn't see her again really for a year. Uh, and she had a boyfriend which was with someone else. Uh, and her boyfriend invited me to come and speak in his university, but only because he knew that I liked, I knew Katie, so he was using that as leverage. Uh, and uh, I just kind of, I was in a sort of weird, drunken, debauched place, really, uh, and and behaving very badly and and self destructively. And uh, I just met her again at this thing and just completely fell for it. Like just couldn't, just it was just overwhelmed with this. Uh, obsession with her and I didn't know whether she felt the same back I didn't know why I felt this and I just remember obviously it was it's a wonderful time and you're in love and you realize that the other person has the same feelings for you as well but I just the smell of the top of her head whenever I embraced her was just this incredible I mean you know I can't I can't so not wet hair not wet hair dry hair and there's there's a little bit of it there and occasionally you, I'd smell the kids' heads, and sometimes you get a sort of a memory feeling it's there. So it might just be uh, the way her head smells, but it doesn't smell like that anymore. <laughs> after after 12, twelve years together and eight years of marriage, it doesn't smell the same. Uh, there's a little bit of it there. I, I love her even more than I did then. But it's just, I think it just sort of it was it was such a weird, you know, overpowering smell. And, you know, it's this. It, it, it wasn't a sweet smell. It was a maybe musky smell. It's all hormones, isn't it? But it mm. just was, it was just so, the feeling it gave me, just to smell that alongside all the other feelings I was, I was involved in and sort of caught up in. It, obviously, it's just a magical time when you you meet the person you kind of, you know, I knew pretty much that if I could persuade her that she should be with me, that, that this was the person that I wanted to be with. Or pretty much straight away, uh, and yeah, so all that, all those early dates where it was, is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? And you know, it was, uh, we, I'm just sort of walking through London. I'd always walk back to a bus stop, and 
she'd get a bus home. But it, but it was also it was like very much. I felt like this is we're going to take our time with this, which I never did. <laughs> it was so there was no there was not attempting to uh, seal the deal. And yeah, those those kind of when you're walking back through London, you kind of feel like London was created for you, you know. <laughs> And it just that sort of is that real walking on ethic, and I don't, you know, I've been in love, I guess, before, but I, it was it nothing, nothing as much as this, and nothing that I was so certain about it. I kind of felt like we're gonna have two kids. I just, you know, I was, I was sort of trying not to tell, say all this blur, all this out before we'd even discussed. You know, I met up with her ostensibly just to talk about the stand-up scene in London and help her out and stuff. There was just this certainty about it. That I'd found the right person, and and that excitement of whether they'll feel the same, and and then finding out they feel the same, and so yeah, something about that, um, you know, that's a, that's a thing, a moment I would like to go to return do think, to. Do you think that um, because I've spoken to a number of people and they've they've mentioned something like this, yeah, uh, and. For many of them, they're so certain yeah. of that that they don't even doubt the other person's going to go along with it. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of that. And I think, you know, maybe that certainty helps roller coaster the thing through. You know, it's nice to, for someone to fall in love with you in that way. I think there was definitely something there. We just ended up, this time I'd done this uh, talk at this university, we hadn't really seen each other that much. I talked to her briefly. And then we just fell in step at the end of the, at the, end of the evening as I was going back to my hotel and she was going back home. There was just like this unspoken thing, and she said something funny about anal sex as it happens. But it was, <laughs> I think it was some awful, terrible joke. Really, That's the anyway. girl for me. But it was, it was, yeah, you had me at anal sex, uh, and uh, and uh, yeah, it was. There was just something. There was a feeling there, and I think it was a genuine feeling. And I think that's you know again, it's those signals that that aren't conscious. Then obviously, smell again is one of those. It has this very strong feeling you know that we there's obviously something genetically that our bodies were telling us this is you know we maybe should be having kids with each other but if i'd just met somebody else the month before and had given a go at that even if they hadn't been the right person destructive uh, behavior you were demonstrating before that was a sign of frustration i don't know really i mean it was it was i'm not going to say it wasn't a good time <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, I'm glad I did it, and I sort of didn't do. I mean, I did it on and off throughout my life. You know, I obviously was 40 before I got married, so uh, there were times when I was better behaved and worse behaved than other times. And there was times when in relationships, and there's time when I wasn't. But I'd never really found anyone. I'd never been with anyone for longer than a couple of years. You know, and if I met someone, I liked them. I said, "Look, I'm like you, but I'm not interested in having a relationship of any kind at the moment, or you know, whatever." And uh, and therefore, anyone was in the position to go, well, I, I do want a relationship. And they go, okay, well, this isn't going to work. Yeah. So you'd rather than, you know... It's String just, people along. Yeah, yeah, and you just realise if you're in that mood, there's plenty of people in the world who are also in that mood. So you just have to meet the people who are in that mood and not dick around the people who aren't in that mood. And that's just the secret of it, really. And so, you know, I was thinking 40 is very old. Uh, I did a show called Oh Fuck, I'm 40, which I, was, <laughs> which I sort of was, was worried about that. I'd lived this kind of teenage lifestyle up until then, really, and, and this, you know, hadn't had to have any responsibilities. So I, was, I had that feeling of this can't go on. Um, it can't go on, so let's make the most of it now. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, also it was worth waiting for the person who was definitely the right person. You know, for that you, smell. Yeah. That meeting obviously led, A, to me getting my act together a lot more and settling down and having a family, which is something I'd always wanted to do, and I think that was... You know, that realisation I might not have a family. And, you know, that, that feeling that I'd almost missed out on that. And I'm so glad that I uh, 
that I didn't miss out on that. It totally changed everything and I think also gave me a proper focus on what I was trying to do. I started dating my wife the same month I started doing podcasts, just coincidentally. Uh. But I think the you know, the the way my career has gone subsequently, you know, I got back into control of of myself and my life and Katie was obviously a massive part of that and the, and the kids were then subsequently a big part of that. It's nice to have something to work for, isn't it? It's yeah. nice to have a reason to be earning <laughs> Other than money. just going out for a drink. <laughs> yeah, and it's nice to be, you know, I, I actually, you know, we moved to the country and I kind of like it. I like the fact that I can just stay in at night and not, not really be in a position to go out very much and be with the family. Uh, but yeah, the work I'm doing now is is better than anything I've ever done. The stand-up I'm doing now is better than anything I've done. The podcasts have uh, obviously uh, found a audience that make them work as a sort of business model, as well as which they never was never the intention. No. Uh, so I've sort of slipped into being a semi-successful, uh, you know self-employed broadcaster <laughs> without really meaning to because I only did podcasts to really have fun and that's probably why they work so again I'm glad this happened because I think this was probably uh, putting me on the path though still quite a long way away from settling down into acting a bit more responsibly uh, the last thing I would like to put into this is the bad thing mm-hmm. that I'd rather forget uh, which is a vaguely the sense of touch. It's my swollen testicle. <laughs> in 2002, I went on holiday uh, with my then girlfriend. Uh, she was not my girlfriend at the end of the holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it was just the time when I was... I went out with a few actresses in a row... And they were. It was a very dramatic and exciting time. Mm-hmm. But going out with this particular actress made me decide that uh, I would stop going out with actresses. <laughs> very, that was, very wise. That was, that was uh, which I uh, nearly stuck to. Uh, and uh, this isn't a, a, a famous person. I did go out with a famous actor around the time that people will know. And uh, this what she was uh, a handful as well. But uh, <laughs> this wasn't her. Uh, and uh, I'd met her for a friend of a friend. And we sort of got together. But she was she was a little bit nuts and made some weird statements that I didn't entirely agree with. But there were, again, it was something like something had clicked between us. I mean, and also, I should point out, I was also nuts at this time. So I'm not saying, oh, crazy women, crazy actresses. I was off the, you know, the reason this we were together is because we were both, you know, not really thinking and not really compasmentous and it was exciting to be with someone a bit crazy for both of us, I think. Um, but I was right in time, gentlemen, please, it was the second series and we'd got ahead of ourselves and I realised I could have, like, a, uh, they had the scripts ready and that we, there was only this one week we could go on holiday uh, and so we went to Barbados for a week um, the day before we went on holiday, I was doing a gig and I was I, we, I was arguing with my girlfriend. She wouldn't come and meet me. I said, well, come and stay at mine because we're going to the airport first thing in the morning. She said, no, I'm not coming. I'll meet you at the airport. <laughs> and I was going, that's insane. Why? why and we had this big argument. I can't remember much about it, but I couldn't really understand what was going on. And then when we were on the holiday, uh, she kept going off and saying she had phone calls. She had to do phone calls or something going on. <laughs> and um, uh, as it transpired... The, her previous boyfriend, she'd been with him the night before she'd... Uh, oh, my God. And he'd proposed to her, and so they were then ringing up about that and whatever. But then she went on holiday. But I didn't, yeah. So she still came on holiday. We'd had this big blowout, but we'd already booked the holiday, and 
And then so just everything on the holiday was awful, except there was a brilliant chef there who made this brilliant lobster and mashed potato that I still is one of my favourite things I've ever eaten. That was the only good about thing. Why don't more people put lobster with mashed potato? <laughs> it was amazing. When you hear it, it's It was obvious. amazing. Uh, and the lobster was just incredible. Uh, but yeah, it was just all these things went, you know, it was she was disappearing off to party with people she knew on the island and leaving me behind. But I think on the second day I got in the sea and uh, it was quite wavy and I got hit by a wave and I got spun round and it hit my head on the gra- on a sort of stone. But for some reason, I must have hit something else as well. But for some reason, one of my testicles swelled up to about four or five times its size. It's right. your, and it's already impressive size when it's normal. But it was it was like a sort of tennis ball sized testicle. Well, thank God, I was worried that it was her that was responsible. <laughs> it was well, it wasn't. It was an Italian accent, but it was typical of this holiday where I barely spent any time with her. She was just very much fun. I was just you know, and I, even if I'd wanted to have any fun, it would have been quite difficult and painful. <laughs> so I just had this, you know, I ripped some stomach line as well. I quite quite badly hurt, but I didn't go to the doctor or anything about it. Um, the testicle sums up the the holiday. I didn't find out about the the proposal till after we'd broken up. But the flight home from Barbados, my testicle acted as a like an altimeter in that it had hurt it just the the atmospheric pressure changed as the plane got higher and my ball hurt. The more, the higher we got the more it hurt. As I was just sort of in pain for seven days in pain with someone that we'd basically fallen out with. We got a cab back from the airport, and I don't think we officially had broken up, but that was the end of the relationship. So either in the cab or afterwards, we broke up. And then Al told me, because he was friends with her friend, and said, oh, you know, she got proposed to the night before. (laughs) I said, no, I didn't know that. And she denied it. And then I went through, I had all the phone numbers from the hotel room. So she spent about 100 quid ringing ringing from the hotel room like every day and i rang the one that was being rung a lot and the guy the guy answered and so i knew it was oh, I knew it was him. so it was a very bad experience uh i don't uh absolve myself from blame i'm not wasn't a perfect man in any sense of the time i'd lent her quite a lot of money but she's the only person in my life who ever eventually paid that money back she paid me back it was like a few thousand pounds yeah and she paid me back just as I was proposing to my wife, and I mean, I didn't use the money for that, but it, the money covered the cost of the engagement <laughs> to my wife. But you know, it was interesting. No one else has ever paid me back. I mean, we were not a good match, but there was, it was that thing where it was. Are you friends now? I mean, yeah, well, I don't see her, but I think we've we. I don't think I don't. I don't. I actually, I think it was such an important thing to go through. I think I've been through a lot of relationships, in professionally and personally where I was prepared to be a bit of a punch bag and to put up with people behaving badly. And that one made me decide, no, I've got to have a bit more self-respect and not yeah. not put up with that. I think, like, subsequently, I think, you know, it was that... I think we did sort of hook up a few times even after we'd broken up. So it wasn't like... You know, there was something very... There was something physically between the two of us. There was no smell. That's what... That was... <laughs> no. have been, if I'd known about the smell... That would have tipped me in the right direction, but yeah, there was something where we were very excited to be with each other, and it was it was that thrill of the drama of craziness, you know. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I think that holiday sums it up. Neither of us were ready to be uh, in a solo relationship, and this is what I'm talking about. You know, I think subsequently you sort of realised if we just said, "Should we just just go and fuck each other for three months?" And uh, enjoy that, and have and a then, holiday while we're doing <laughs> it. Go on holiday, and if you want to, if you want to get to go out with your boyfriend the night before, that's fine. Um, 
then it would have probably worked perfectly. But, you know, you, I didn't have the mental understanding to say, yeah, I'm not sure that I want to be in a relationship with someone right now. And she certainly was obviously clearly not. No. <laughs> she didn't marry the guy. No. She, she <laughs> didn't accept the proposal. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's just, it's that sort of level of craziness. Yeah. So I am, um, I don't want to have a swollen testicle again. And I no, don't, no, I don't want to be in, the, I don't want to have to go in a plane. I don't want to go into the time capsule. We're going to seal it up. It's and, sealed uh, up. And it's safe. But again, I'm glad I met her and I'm really glad I went through it all because I think you need to make those realisations and some, you know, of where you're culpable and what mistakes you're making. And I think it's very easy in relationships to go when they go wrong is to just blame the other person. Mm. But actually, everything's going wrong because you've chosen badly or you find out stuff about people. But also, you're not the hero of a film, you know I mean? You're not this perfect person. You're making mistakes as well and your mistakes fuel the mistakes the other person's making, I think. So I think the realisation that I could be with someone who was nice to me, you know, and that someone who wasn't being mean to me. And I think I... Think I you know, I think there was that kind of low self-esteem that I think probably all goes back to that that Edinburgh being by stand-up comedians. It took me a long time to sort of get over that, and but also I was so focused in on my work that I think, you know, until I was forty, I wasn't ever going to be in a position to be in a relationship with someone because it was the work was always going to come first. Yes. Every year, I kind of think, well, I'll, I've got to think more carefully about what what choices I'm making about work and family balance. You obviously need to work to keep your family alive, but mm-hmm. you also need to be, be with, with your family, family yeah. to experience it. And it's difficult in our job because you'll get, you know, I'm not doing as much. I don't do acting like you do really, but, you know, a job can suddenly take you away from yes. the country the strangers for, of for three months. And people and, say, know. fantastic, yeah. it's, my, <laughs> it's my 21st birthday coming up. And you say, yeah, yeah absolutely. And the day before you get offered a job yeah. and you're gone. You know, and you know that you sort of have to take things, you know. I think that's why I've got slightly better at going... Okay, I don't have to. I don't have to take this now. Things are going well enough. I don't have to do that one. That's a good position um, to be. Yeah, in. so it's it's that that's a nice place to be. But yeah, I think I think it was for all of it was fun. I think work working with Stu it was basically fun, but it was you know you know what it's like being working with a group of people and it's difficult and you, the the personalities involved make it difficult. Um, and it was it was sort of great being single, but it's you know I'm I'm definitely. Um, happy in my life in a way that I just never was when I look back at it. So when I look back at it, so it's... Uh, it's true. When you actually are in those groups, and it is difficult when you're young working with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, recently, the people that I worked with when yeah. I was young, we got back together yeah. and toured. And we had exactly the same problem. Really? <laughs> you thought, I thought you were going to say... I know, and it was really lovely. Everybody, <laughs> they hadn't changed at all. No. It was exactly the same. Yeah, I think... Uh, it's difficult, you know. It is. It's interesting that going back to something, and I'm a massive fan of uh, radioactive. I have to say, uh, and it's you know, and I think you need you need that little bit of grit in there to make it work, you know. Yeah. And me and Stu were very similar in loads of ways, certainly in, co- in terms of our understanding of comedy. But you know, we would argue over nothing. I mean, we'd argue over at or the in a sentence for a day. <laughs> and uh, you know, but I think you know, I was, when Terry Jones died. Uh, really hit me much harder than I thought it would. When Rick Mail died, it really hit me, and I thought it would. But Terry Jones, but he was him and John Cleese. I think that was the grit between the two of them. Mm. They kind of didn't really get on, or they were different personalities yeah. in the way they approached things. And that bit of grit between them is what I think that makes the pearl. Yeah, and it's um, yeah. Um, we, the thing is that we found that even though we had the same problems, and we yeah. had the same antagonisms, and and. Uh, behavior that would wind each other up uh 
we were able to look at it with a sort of a, a more indulgently. Yeah. So in fact, we we were able to smile at it and yeah. go, "Yeah, that still makes me annoyed." <laughs> yeah, you're still doing that thing. Yeah. Don't go back. That's my advice. No, no. <laughs> I'm not going back. No. Well, we've got these things. In it. This is your past. It's all in there. Yeah. And, and we're going to lock it away, and yeah. uh, and I'm going to give it to you. You can put it anywhere you like. So Thank you. somewhere safe. Thank you. But it's been great to talk to you. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. All right. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Richard Herring. You can subscribe to this podcast for a free download of all episodes on Acast or your own favorite podcast provider. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. Thank you. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. For all the latest about My Time Capsule, just search at MyTCPod, or you can follow me at Fenton Stevens. Not that I'm going anywhere in particular. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. Until next time, keep well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.